1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkoff, and I'm here in New York City In our studio in Washington, D.C. is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Julie Smith of the Center for New American Security. And her podcast, which is called Brussels Sprouts, which deals with transatlantic issues, is something I urge all of you nerds to go and listen to because it's exactly the kind of thing that will be your um, catnip. Uh, it 's it 's terrific julie 's terrific, as you know from past appearances, and of course, out in sunny California, under a palm tree near a fountain, Corey Shockey at Stanford university so guys <laughs> if you if if you picked up a newspaper, or listened to um a broadcast or saw something on Twitter in the past day or so. One of the things that probably leapt out at you is that for the first time in nearly two decades, an American aviator shot down the the aviator of another country, in this case a Syrian flying a MiG-22, I believe, Uh, and the response to that from the Russian government was that it would engage fighters of the U.S.-led coalition, which implies, of course, U.S. fighters, in the air in similar fashion. Of course, the moment that a Russian fighter shoots down an American fighter or an American fighter shoots down a Russian fighter, um, we're in a whole different world, not in Kansas anymore. So take that, combine that with the fact that we're adding troops on the ground in Syria, combine that with the fact that we are more aggressive than we have been in Iraq. Combine that with the support for the United States for the Gulf coalition against Qatar and, more importantly, I think, against Iranian forces both in Yemen and taking a tougher stance towards Iran in the Persian Gulf, and throw in there just for good measure the fact that the president of the United States— has decided to pass on uh, to the Pentagon the authority to make troop allocation decisions, a a type of decision typically uh, held at the White House. Uh, And the Pentagon has decided to add 4,000 additional troops in Afghanistan. And you get the distinct impression that every part of the Middle East is heating up. And at the same time, the White House is increasingly... Disconnected from these conflicts. So before we dive in, try to understand the implications of all of this. Julie, let me start with you. Do you think I've described this properly? And if I missed something,
2: Uh, no, it was a pretty long list. Uh, You could add to it. We've got uh, Turkish military drills in Qatar, we've got uh, the Saudi Navy. Uh, detaining three IRGC members. Uh, the list is pretty long. I think your description's spot on. Uh, I think tensions are flaring, things are heating up, um, and we have an administration that is distracted by its own self inflicted wounds and it remains understaffed and, uh, checked out in many ways. And most importantly, or perhaps most troubling, it continues to operate without a strategy for any of these areas. We have not had any major foreign policy addresses that indicate that the White House or state or the de- Defense Department have anything resembling a plan or a vision of where they want to go in Syria, in Afghanistan, in our relationship with lots of countries across the Middle East. Uh, and so I think it's – it's. Um, it's not uncommon for many of the nerds running around Washington D.C. to feel a little bit uneasy uh, at the moment. I did have one person tell me, "Don't worry," uh, when Turkey shot down a Russian jet, nothing happened, and uh, they had a little bit of a tit for tat. Uh, they didn't launch into war of any kind. But I think if you're comparing that to what just happened in Syria, you're really in a case of apples and oranges. I don't buy it I, i'm not feeling calm through that analogy maybe so, that's just
1: me so so cory you Corey, you're the smartest person i know who has alleged that the trump administration actually has a strategy anywhere um uh, and
3: <laughs> it's a strategy for increasing ratings um, though david not a
2: strategy for the yeah, East, yeah, unfortunately uh, and it's doing great on the well, ratings very yeah high marks on that yeah. uh,
1: Yeah, well, that's what, you know, you hire a reality TV guy. What do you expect? But, Corey, as you look at this, do you see a hint of a strategy here on behalf of the White House or if the White House isn't involved on behalf of anybody else associated with the U.S. government?
0: So I do think there is a strategy, but I agree with Julie that um, you wouldn't know it because Nobody in the political leadership of the administration is talking about it, and that that's an enormous mistake uh, and likely a very dangerous one, given the circumstances in the Middle East right now. Here's what I think their strategy is it is that um, we we need to win the war in Iraq uh, and because the ISIS phenomenon in Iraq and Syria is a is an incubator for the kind of radicalism we feel genuinely threatened by, and so uh, you have to destroy ISIS. The Secretary of Defense has described it as an annihilation strategy. Right, we're not just going to push them from place to place and let them regroup elsewhere. We are going to actually you know, surround Mosul, separate to the extent we can the irreconcilable and devoted ISIS folks and kill them. Um, And I think that's one central element of their strategy, the defeat of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. To that end, they have been ramping up the pace of operations. Um, Syria, um, they are, is. In Syria, they are trying to fight ISIS while leaving the Bashar al-Assad government in place. So the second element of their strategy is leave Assad in place because they are more fearful of a power vacuum in Syria than they are of the horrible, ruthless, murderous tyrant running Syria. The third element of their strategy is to try and bring Turkey into alignment on that by promising them that we will help the Kurds in the near term and we will prevent them from being a secessionist or terrorist threat to Turkey over the medium and long term. The Turks are obviously not confident in our willingness or ability to do that, so that piece of the strategy hasn't come together, but but that's what they're trying to do. They are... Uh, they genuinely believe that Iran is as big a threat to uh, our interests as ISIS is. And therefore, you need to push back. We can leave the nuclear agreement in place, but you have to push back on everything else the Iranians are doing. Harassment of shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, destabilization of government, support for Hamas and Hezbollah. And then the fourth element of their strategy is to avert their eyes from the domestic governance concerns that people like me believe are the actual cause of, of uh, the terrorism that we see emanating from there. And, but the administration is going to take a side in the fight and the side they're taking are the Saudis and the UAE. So they are going to give them all the help and support they want to win the wars they're fighting there. I think it. it like, so, it's not a strategy I agree with, but I do think it's a pretty clear strategy.
1: Um, well, Rosa, what do, what do you think of that <laughs> at that amount?
3: It's funny. I, well, I, I had I had several thoughts listening to this. Um, the, the first was when Julie was talking and saying there is no strategy. I was thinking of the many times that Julie and I have sat in the same room and said that about the Obama administration, uh, particularly with regard to the Middle East. Um, uh, but, of course, the, the Obama administration's uh, famous line was, uh, don't do stupid shit. Um, sometimes euphemized for our family podcast is don't do stupid stuff. And we – we uh, and Hillary Clinton. When did a we become
0: a family podcast? We are a I was going
3: to say, has something not, changed? I did. a family I, I podcast. Did, no one sent me the memo. Dog listens yeah. to this. Come on. And she's very young. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, Your dog has a foul <laughs> mouth. <laughs> That's so not true, David. Um. But 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 – but we and then candidate Hillary Clinton said don't do stupid shit is not enough you know that's that's sort of that's a good start but it's not a strategy um i was thinking as julie julie berated trump for lack of strategy well, so okay, so what's different here if we also said Obama didn't have a strategy? I think what's different here is that the Trump administration appears to have dropped the "don't do stupid stuff" part, which I, you know, think was a necessary but not sufficient condition for for beginning to develop a strategy, and and that is my fear. I mean, I I don't know. Obviously, I don't think any of us have the details on precisely. What was the thinking behind shooting down that Syrian plane? Uh, precisely, what were the circumstances? Was a decision made to do it despite the potentially escalatory consequences, or or was it one of those things that just happens and you didn't quite mean it to happen, and then you're stuck with it? And and, and but I but I do think that the the scenario that we've all been most fearful of with with the Trump administration. Uh, I think has been the possibly inadvertent escalatory episode, which then sends things spiraling out of control. Uh, And I do worry. I mean, Corey, Corey, I think, has offered a very generous interpretation of of events. Uh, It's less clear to me that there is a cohesive strategy. Foreign policy on Friday had a piece, for instance, arguing that some in the White House uh, uh, were urging a much more aggressive stance towards confronting Iranian-funded uh, uh, proxies in the in Syria, obviously, Iran is complicated because they're also fighting ISIS at the same time, and um, that the Pentagon was pushing back against that, but that meanwhile the White House is pushing back against, or at least some elements, the Steve Bannon elements in the White House are pushing back against Pentagon efforts to send more troops to Afghanistan. I I think that you know Corey's interpretation seems pretty generous. Uh, what seems to me to be happening right now is is that there is just a lot of tension between the Mattis-McMaster camp and the White House political folks, uh, which is not that surprising. Every administration has some of those tensions. Um, and that's leading to sometimes what seems like oscillations in the strategy as a result. And again, that in itself, not that unusual. But uh, in this case, I think I think more dangerous. Uh, I think more across the board disregard for potential consequences.
1: Well, I think you know there, there are several levels to these answers, and one of them is, you know, the in, inevitably people will write articles about the Trump doctrine, and the Trump doctrine is Trump, or the Trump doctrine is Gulf. The Trump doctrine has nothing to do with foreign policy. He doesn't care. He's disengaged. There are a few guys around him in the White House who are pushing in one direction or another. But most of the stuff that's happening in the Middle East right now is not really happening with White House supervision. So I think from the point of view of the White House, the analysis that you've just offered, which is essentially Trump has taken Obama's absence of a Middle East strategy and Obama's um, don't-do-stupid-shit guidelines and thrown away the don't-do-stupid-shit guidelines but kept the absence of a strategy in the region, uh, at least at the White House level. Now, the military may be saying, let's turn up the heat, or a few people in the White House may be saying, let's turn up the heat. But of course, turning up the heat's not a strategy. And the problem in the Middle East is that you find yourself on both sides of a lot of arguments. And so, as you say, if Iran is going after ISIS, then we're for them and we're against them. If Russia is helping us a little someplace in Syria, theoretically, we're for them and we're against them. Um, You know, the Kurds will support them now until we don't support them later. The Turks, we're for them and we're against them. And, you know, we don't understand how the shin bone connects to the knee bone. How does Yemen connect to Iraq, connect to Syria, connect to... um, the Qatar's crisis connect to Iran, connect to Afghanistan, et cetera. And nobody is taking a step back and looking at all of that. So let's just, let's just say, you know, you've heard of several different perspectives on that. But let's just sort of tease out what these various escalations or complications can do. Julie, imagine that a Russian fighter takes a shot at a U.S. fighter. What happens next?
2: Well, my God, if if that happens, I mean, then – I mean, we are in a completely new land um, because now the Trump administration has to determine what it wants to do with Russia. Does it want to escalate a direct – conflict, confrontation with Russia. Um, And by the way, this is another area where I have not seen a clearly articulated policy for Russia. Um, And in fact, we see threads of contradictions of, you know, half of the administration um, trying to work some sort of warming in the relationship, um, mostly those inside the White House being instructed at all levels to find some wins and ways to improve the U.S. U.S.-Russia relationship, and then half the administration running around saying, "We've got a real problem here, folks. We don't have the tools. We don't have a strategy, and Russia is eating our lunch in many, many different categories. And they're going to keep doing it until we come up with a plan, either deterrence or something else that's going to work in getting them to stop doing things like interfere in our election." So let's say Russia takes the shot. Now the administration, yeah, has to determine how it wants to escalate? Does it want to have an asymmetric response? Does it not want to respond at all? Is it going to cool its heels and back away? I mean, even short of that happening, the administration today now has a dilemma now that Russia has come out and said anything that's airborne west of the Euphrates, we're going to take down. Uh, So for the administration, they have to determine, are we going to call Russia's bluff? and just keep on doing what we're doing? Are we gonna dial back our operations to date Or go elsewhere inside Syria? We've been moving into the eastern and northern sections. Are we going to roll that back? Are we going to change any part of the counter-ISIL coalition and its overarching plan, mission um, in any way? Or do we want to see if Russia is just trying to issue empty threats? And that in itself, before they even shoot down some sort of U.S. asset, is a pretty tough question to answer. So I can imagine, I hope, There's a lot of scurrying around in the situation room today, trying to determine what the plan is. What are we going to do now that Russia has issued this threat?
1: Corey, what do you think?
0: So I have two reactions. Um, uh, One in theory, which is an ameliorative, and another in practice, which is alarmist. So, the, my reaction in Siri is that, uh, you know, in the early 1960s, um, Tom Schelling ran a series of uh, war games in the Pentagon during the Kennedy administration, looking at uh, crises that would precipitate direct confrontation between the U.S. and Soviets that would lead to nuclear weapons use. And what he found, to his surprise, is that in a crisis, um, both sides are so worried about escalation that you actually achieve crisis stability that is not escalatory, right? So in theory, this should hold for the U.S. and Russians, and, and maybe so. Here's what I'm worried about in practice, though. What I'm worried about in practice is that As Julie pointed out, this is an administration that does not have a Russia policy because the White House's reflexes are so different than the reflexes of the institutions and anybody who's a foreign policy expert. And as Peter Fieber pointed out in a good foreign policy column, they've got to figure out how to square this circle because it's crucial for strategy. And they haven't squared the circle on that. This combines with the president's complete dissociation from the war effort, not just no major foreign policy speech. Anytime anything bad happens, he blames the generals instead of taking responsibility for himself. So here's what I'm afraid of. You get a shoot down of a U.S. plane or us shooting down a Russian plane. And the president says, what the hell? We need to back away from this and writes off Syria. Right. So so my fear is an erratic um, pro-Russian reaction by the president in a crisis that collapses our credibility in Syria and for America's allies who rely on our security guarantees. And I think that's the likeliest outcome of, of the spiraling up of tensions in Syria.
1: So, Rosa, do you think this – that we've sort of crossed a watershed moment in terms of the shootdown that just occurred? Or do you think that a potential shootdown would be a watershed moment and really something that could have broader geopolitical context, you know, effects and really raise the level of global tension to a new place?
3: Could absolutely – is it inevitable? Certainly not. And this is, of course, what diplomacy has traditionally been for, right, that that, that you— Well, who does that? Who <laughs> well, does diplomacy in the they U.S. Realize government? the problem. <laughs> the, the two people still at the State Department. I think there is some guy <laughs> in, you know, one of the offices on the third floor is still at work. We could call him and ask. Um, no, I, I mean, in all seriousness, right, that, that there have been scary moments before— uh, between superpowers, incredibly tense moments, Cuban Missile Crisis comes to mind, but, but, but many smaller moments as well. Uh, you know, the Russian shooting down of uh, the American spy plane U-2 uh, years ago, um, uh, the U.S. shooting down uh, inadvertent of an Iranian civilian plane. There, you know, that history is full of situations that could have escalated and didn't. Uh, and the reason they didn't in all of those situations is that we did have diplomats working really hard to sort of bring everybody back from the brink and find face saving ways out for everybody. Um, so I don't think that there's anything about even a hypothetical Russian shooting down a manned American aircraft and killing an American uh, flight crew that inevitably triggers World War III. You know, I don't think the Russians want World War Three. Um, I don't think anybody in the Pentagon wants World War Three. I seriously doubt that even most people in the White House want World War Three. You know, so 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 there are there's there's no single moment where you're just over a cliff and there's nothing that can be done. Uh, But I do think that the opportunities for. For the sort of inadvertent escalation, which then gets mishandled, which then leads to further inadvertent escalation, which then gets mishandled, which then leads to you know a spiraling crisis. Uh, the, the possibility of that is significant. I mean, I, I think, I think we, we've discussed in previous episodes that uh, I think my argument about Trump's character has been the one and only thing that we can that we can confidently predict is that he will behave in an unpredictable fashion. Uh, I think it's about 50-50. You know, it depends on his mood and what he saw on TV that morning, what he ate for breakfast and who he saw most recently. Is his response to something like that, a hypothetical Russian shooting down of an American plane, would his response be, Oh, this is too much bother. So much for Syria, you know. I, it's more important for me to play golf someday with Vladimir Putin than to slug it out over this, and and that's the end of that, you know. <laughs> or is his response, "What they did? What you know? Nuke them, uh, and that's the end of that, you know." I, I it's about fifty fifty, I think. Um, well, he doesn't
2: he doesn't like to be a loser, you he, know. L- losing would be walking away. He doesn't right? like to be I a mean, loser, but uh, on
3: the other hand, he's his his instincts prior to becoming president certainly. Have been these places don't matter. I'm not going to invest in them. We shouldn't be. You know, he said that repeatedly about Afghanistan. He said it about Iraq. He said it about Syria. You know, these places do not matter to us. And again, I you know I think it depends who he spoke to most recently. Might he do what Corey suggested and just say? I don't care about Syria. This is so stupid. You know, why should we be getting into a big fight with the Russians over Syria? Forget it. You know, apologize to us for shooting down our aircraft and you can, you know, you can have the country. It's all yours. You know, could that Because ha- we don't care. We, we got better things to do. I've got more important things to do. I, I think he's completely unpredictable, but neither of those is a good outcome. Needless to say, neither neither we hand off Syria and walk away and the Russians just learn that they can roll us. Uh, That's not a good outcome, but neither is uh, escalation, Uh, you know, an escalating struggle for power with Russia in which we start, you know, I I don't think we escalate immediately to World War III. I think we go to a whole series of events of they shoot down an American plane. Well, we do something similar to them and things get worse and worse. But that would be pretty darn bad.
1: Well, I think that that gets me to my series of yes buts, you know, which is (laughs) – you know that's a you know very important rhetorical tool that we use in these discussions but um the the yes buts it's just one word but uh you know first of all, before I get to those you know one of the things that strikes me is that the Trump administration has has essentially emerged as a kind of twisted fantasy of what the anti Obama administration is. They felt the White House meddled in everything
0: right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, but it's true. They felt the White House meddled in everything. So the White House isn't actually doing the anything. Pentagon, you it, they take felt Afghanistan. The, you figure it right, out. Right. They felt that they pre- the generals weren't empowered, so they're deferring everything to the generals. And they felt the State Department and Kerry meddled in stuff, so they've just shut down the State Department. So no White House, no State Department. Leave it to the generals except when you need to blame somebody. But as far as your scenarios right. go, you know, as far as the kind of yes buts go— um, Uh, First of all, I I think the analogy of, you know, what we were in the middle of the Cold War and that we didn't escalate up to nuclear war all the time is fine. But, you know, we could get to a point where... um, we, we we escalated in other ways, and in fact, that's been the pattern. The pattern has been U.S. Russia tensions rise even during the Cold War, and then there's a proxy fight someplace sure. else, yeah. whether it's in Vietnam or it's in Central America or it's something else. Right. And you know, here the obvious proxy fight that everybody is waiting for, and this administration, as Corey pointed out, has just got the itchiest of trigger fingers for is Iran. So you go, you get some mm-hmm. kind of escalation of tension and that starts you know producing more situations where the next confrontation is between the US and US allies and the Iranians and that of course could be extremely messy because that actually touches not just Iran or the US but obviously Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and the Gulf and 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 so forth mm-hmm. and then it you know in 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 terms of the other yes but uh, you know, we can say that there's a rational policy process, but the moment a Russian plane locks onto an American plane or an American plane locks onto a Russian plane, you know, you may have a you know five-second deliberative process here um, that produces an outcome that's actually got years of consequences. And so, you know, to me, we, what we're doing is, you know, we talked in an earlier episode about... All the Trump crises so far have been self-inflicted wounds. They haven't faced a big global crisis. And we've got ourselves drifting due to absence of policy and some bad decisions towards a potential escalation in four or five places in the Middle East. And I'll throw in North Korea for, you know, the kind of crisis um, that would be not only transformative in terms of, you know, what we're talking about every day, but it might be extremely Extremely well-timed for a Trump administration on the ropes to do a little bit of that wag the dog thing. So, Corey, what do you think?
3: She's sunk into a depression. She can't speak. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I, think those are all legitimate worries, David. Uh, the, the fundamental problem with the administration is the president. Um, and... And I agree with... 25th Amendment, Rose's I say to you. About him. I agree with <laughs> Rosa's point yeah. about him being erratic. Um, and, you know, the fact that people didn't mm-hmm. necessarily vote for him because they liked his views on foreign policy or because, you know, they're exasperated with how hard and complicated the world is, um, still means we're stuck with him. And uh, the theory that the adults in the room are going to save us, uh, fond as I am of those adults, um, seems to me we have always overrated because at the end of the day, the president, there's only so much you can do in the American system to protect against the president. Uh, So, yeah, I think think it's potentially dangerous.
1: Julie, we're in a period of what we might call crisis drift. We are drifting. I mean, we've entered I think you, know, yeah. uh, to, you know... CRIFT! CRIFT! I love it. <laughs> you, Let's write that's, some papers on CRIFT
2: policy memos. Yeah, no, CRIFT, the Crift, new
1: Crift. could be the new, the the new, new thing. thing yeah. <laughs> the first thing a nerd does is try to come up with an acronym. The second thing they do is write a paper, and the third thing is to then, you know, hold a conference Um about this stuff. I'm
2: writing okay, it right now. But don't now. worry, folks.
1: <laughs> yeah, and what we nerds, do is we think... I exactly. Well, we, yeah, okay. Well, well, What we'll do is we'll create CRIFT mugs. Beware CRIFT. Drink shall. in case of CRIFT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: Coming to a I theater mean, near but, we, you. We need to... So the design for the deep state nerds who are going to go out and make these mugs, it needs to have, like, tectonic plates. For In sure, motion. yeah, uh,
1: yeah. For, well to me, the, the image up. is a field of icebergs. It's it's like we're on the uh Titanic, and upstairs is the obese, twenty fifth Amendment worthy captain having a champagne, not paying <laughs> any attention. The 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 mm-hmm. icebergs are drifting towards us, um, and but 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 Julie, this is not. I mean, each and every day. The story that doesn't get covered in the press is that we inch closer to a problem that could be a very big problem in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in the Gulf, get in Afghanistan, silo now. with Iran, with North Korea. And as I say this, you might think we've bought up a lot of missile silos and want to sell them to you. And that's true. Contact Rosa Brooks <laughs> at her email address. She has a full range of, of used models. missile silos, yeah. you can tour them. Yeah. <laughs> with the, exactly, there's the, the model homes inside the missile silos, complete with full Can't sets goods. of deep state, deep state radio, um, cutlery, cancerous. mugs. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So please, though, direct your queries on that to Rosa. But, but, I mean. Julie, you worked in the White House. You worked in a White House that sometimes people thought had analysis paralysis. It spent a lot of time thinking about this. When you talk to people who are in or near the White House now, do you get a sense that there is this awareness of the the crift that we're dealing with?
2: <laughs> uh <laughs> I, I I don't have a large sample. I have a small sample, um, but uh, occasionally you can find someone who can see the crift out on the horizon. Um, but I think at a minimum, there's an appreciation that they have in fact. This team has not had to face any major crisis in its first six months or so in office, and. Thank God. That's been a good thing. It's given them a chance to make a few mid-course corrections, although not uh, as many as they should, um, but I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you know it's coming, it's inevitable. Every team faces some sort of major crisis in its first year, um, and you know what? It may not even be what the four of us are sitting here talking about right now. We've got all eyes on the Middle East, but the thing about these crises. These pesky, nasty little crises is they tend to creep up in unexpected places. So it could be in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Could be days, I suppose. Um, something hits the the. Uh, breaking news. And it's it's something none of us have even thought about. Um, and again, it's kind of terrifying, because I don't think they have a process in place that can deal with it. I think the president is erratic. I think Rosa's spot on. It depends on his mood that morning and what cable network he watched at 6am and how much sleep he got. Uh, and we could really be in the soup. Now, the only silver lining is if the White House is serious about empowering the generals and returning power back to say the Pentagon. And if in the middle of this crisis, Trump kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, I have no idea what the hell we're going to do now and Mattis, you sort it out, I'll sleep better at night knowing Mattis can exactly. try and sort it out. This I mean is, this that's is our that civil could military save relations us. conundrum. <laughs> I, you
3: know I never thought I would live to I see would the say day. That. Yeah, no, I'm with <laughs> where you. I would say let's turn American foreign policy over to the Pentagon. That's a good idea. <laughs> I'm feeling but- really
2: positive about that right now. <laughs> but
3: it's looking like a better and are, better are
2: idea. You, uh, yeah.
3: I, seriously. Are, are, but I'd really, rather have Rosa, it in his As, yeah. As a realistic lesser of two evils at this precise moment yeah. in time, yeah. uh, if I had to choose between Jim Mattis calling the shots, if the Russians say fire on an American jet or something like that versus Donald Trump calling the shots, or I would be Jim Mattis any day. Yeah. Or Steve Bannon. Yeah. I mean that, that one seems like the yeah, well, easy one.
2: That's pretty easy.
1: Yeah. But that's that's like saying, you know, you would prefer, you know, Mattis to Ted Nugent calling the shots. And I think that bingo. (laughs) (laughs) um, and, and, And I would, too. But having said that, let's sort of take a deep breath and remember all the other conversations we've had over the years. The US military, and we all know and admire many of the leaders in the United States military, has a terrible track record over the course of the past, I don't know, forty years of managing these crises or coming up with great solutions for them. They they, they are pretty uh, good. I object at, to
0: that? Pardon me? Corey objects. Did you just and say- say- yes. I no, said, no, it's I, firing I salvos. I just, I don't fire a salvo. <laughs>
1: just give one example of a policy promoted and implemented as a result of the of the Pentagon that worked: Afghanistan, Iraq, the war on terror, Vietnam. You know, uh, Central America, uh, you know, I don't know, Granada. The 91 Gulf War strategy
0: of leaving Saddam Hussein in place, the Vietnamization strategy of 1972, the counterinsurgency strategy in Iraq in 2006. I actually think well okay,
1: but those were those were all short-term things that didn't produce good long-term solutions. And but, I'm but willing even to in acknowledge those situations. I'm going to I'm going to help worked.
3: Corey out here, though, David, because even in those situations, it's it's really hard to untangle how much was Pentagon strategy versus how much was Pentagon strategy as altered by White House. Right? That that it's unknowable. It's one of history's many unknowns. You know, if the if Stanley McChrystal had gotten his way on Afghanistan troop levels in 2009 would it have worked maybe maybe not but 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 what we ended up with was not exactly the pentagon strategy it was a sort of unpleasant mishmash of 16 different people's different strategies and it didn't work very well
1: well but look but what i'm saying is this i think the military is pretty good at coming up with evaluations of the situation on the ground and solutions to resolve those things for the near and the medium term i don't think there is much of a track record of long term strategic um, transformative uh, thinking recently, or at least that it worked. Now, is it the problem of the White House? It may be the problem of the White House, but it, it is an issue. Now, Corey, I do want to give you an opportunity here. Uh, uh, we, we record these episodes slightly before you out there in the world hear them, and this episode is being recorded on one of Corey's favorite days, which is the <laughs> 202nd Anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. Please um, um, <laughs> <laughs> still
0: my heart. Oh, David, I could not be happier. <laughs> so, here's the lesson and I, and of Battle and I, of Waterloo.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Which is... You're welcome. David, You're welcome, Corey. Every, <laughs> David, I'm I'm telling you you could not have given a better present. Okay, so here's okay. the lesson of the Battle of Waterloo. Britain took a strategy in which they were fundamentally reliant on allies because they did not have the force to actually defeat defeat Napoleon themselves. It was a beautiful campaign of empowering local forces and building a broad-based alliance and bringing it to bear. Um, We ought to remember that that is the lesson of, of Waterloo. That is the battle that brings Britain's hegemony to its height. They fundamentally become powerful because they can build alliances for the mission at hand. And we should remember that as we go about in the Trump administration, recklessly alienating the very countries that want us to succeed at what we're trying to do in the world.
1: This implicit endorsement <laughs> of really Bluch- good, Blucher's work, <laughs> of Blucher's work in the yes. Battle of Waterloo, uh, is is fantastic. You may but simply...
0: My, my- I feel like... Versus should Winnie every time my name gets said in memory of Blucher.
1: <laughs> that's you wow. Frankenstein. wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh Nerds. <my> <laughs> Nerds. And that's Nerds. a wrap. Corey wins. Corey we, wins. We, for sure. we, we, <laughs> we've hit an apotheosis where we've taken oh, the stop. general that worked with Wellington who was named Blucher and Corey has made a analogy with Fairly recent pop culture, like from the eighties, which is Mel Brooks and Frau Blucher. Uh, that the connection,
3: David, you should just is, stop. Is you, should up, just, you lose the apotheosis
1: of where we go. But 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 the point I was actually getting at here is we're not in Wellington's time. We don't. Have generals like Wellington or Napoleon. Right. We're in Donald Trump's re- time. We made out
3: of generals like Wellington or Napoleon, exactly. but we also don't have, you know, we don't have actually real so, political leaders either. Exactly. So the question is compared to what? I'll take just about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Does the Pentagon, is the Pentagon the right actor for this? No. Uh, is the Pentagon the right actor if the alternative is Donald Trump? Yeah. Well, it actually looks pretty good.
1: Okay. We've got two minutes left. I'm going to go and address that question directly and each one of you can give a response. We haven't given this as much attention as it deserves. The Pentagon, given this authority, the first major use of the authority was the decision to deploy 4,000 more troops in Afghanistan. Now, 100,000 troops didn't make a difference difference in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And and, and in fact, from Alexander through now, any amount of troops don't make much difference in Afghanistan. So, how do we think what do we think of this decision to escalate a weensy weensy bit in Afghanistan, um and where is it going to leave us in a couple of years? We'll start with you, Rosa.
3: uh we remain agnostic, David. That's the royal way uh my horse and I um remain somewhat agnostic um because <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> because as i said, um we, as well, and as Corey said, we first of all, we don't actually Jeez. know that that decision has yet been made. Um, and second of all, we, we don't have any details about 4,000, you know, troops to do what, where, et cetera. Uh so so I think it depends. Um you know, as as in Iraq in two thousand six, there are moments when a short term surge can make a decisive difference over a long period. There are also moments where you're just doing the equivalent of throwing good money after bad. Uh and and I you know, I, I share your fear that this falls into the latter category. Uh on the other hand, I, I'm withholding judgment until we know a little bit more. Uh,
1: yeah. um, that's, well, that's very that's very wise, that's very solomonic, Julie. Yeah. Are you? A, no, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, with yeah, Rose on solomonic. this one.
2: I mean, yeah, I I, uh, I, I trend towards thinking it's not going to be particularly decisive or helpful, um, particularly in light of the fact that we're not sure what purpose um, these troops will serve uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but let's see if what they, our if they if, if, what our or, goals are know, but yeah. if they put forward if mattis or someone else wants to step forward and explain why uh, they will be sending a few thousand more troops to Afghanistan I, I'm open to hearing those arguments it's just I mean I don't think this decision's been taken yet and I certainly haven't heard any rationale for it
3: well, I think what he's essentially said is that they want to push U.S. advisors down to the company level. Right now, they're still at the headquarters level. And that, uh, when it comes to the sort of the minute by minute tactical decisions that have to get made, uh they're almost useless if they're at the headquarters level, so that's their argument that it's literally down. I think I think uh secretary mattis's words were you know how do you take that hill? It makes a difference if you've got uh your advisors right there on the scene versus uh somewhere back in in at Bagram or somewhere else unable to. React rapidly to to what's changing right there in that moment. So so that that is the argument um, again. That that's sort of notwithstanding. What's our long term goal? Um, you know, we've obviously we've had troops in the Korean Peninsula for decades and decades, and that's okay with us, right? Apparently, that's okay with us as a nation. So I don't think the fact that we are still sending troops and sometimes increasing the number of troops in itself is an argument that we're screwing up or that it's a big mistake or that nothing is happening. You know, it might it might be that a perfectly legitimate goal for the United States in Afghanistan is to maintain just high enough a level of military support for the Afghan government to prevent the country from completely collapsing and if that means that we have troops there at the level of 20, 30,000 people for the next 3 decades, maybe that maybe that's the right thing to do. I don't think I I think it's absolutely right that we have not articulated that and that we if if that's what we think we're doing then let's say Say that that's what we think we're doing. And let's argue about that in public. Uh, but, but I don't, I don't assume that that's an automatically, you know, an unlegitimate goal to have. That wasn't terribly uh, well phrased, but you know what I mean?
1: So Corey, I, I find this with, I very persuasive.
0: I, I do find both Julia and Rosa's uh, arguments persuasive. I do think though, that that the defense secretary has outlined the end state we want in Afghanistan. I take the point that the president hasn't, and having the secretary do it is no substitute for the president doing it. I, that I think that criticism ought to be, ought to be hit on the administration all the time, because unless the president commits to it, the administration isn't committed to it. But the end state that the secretary outlined in his budget testimony last week is an Afghanistan stable enough that, that violence can be managed by the Afghan National Security Forces? And the purpose of sending more troops and uh, embedding them at lower levels is to help improve the tactical proficiency of those Afghan units. They are taking knee-buckling levels of casualties like on the order of 25 to 35 percent, the Afghan national security forces should have collapsed under that level of casualties that they are taking. It says a lot about their commitment to making their country a better, safer place that they're hanging in there. And so my sense is that the rationale for the additional troops is to help bolster up the Afghan security forces, they're fighting a really brave fight and giving ground and and therefore just as we helped back up forces in the balkans and in iraq and in syria the the point is to help stabilize them when they are taking high levels of losses so that they can continue to carry this fight forward and that strikes me as well worth doing
1: well, you know, those are all very persuasive arguments, and they don't even get into the implicit geopolitical benefits of having twenty to 30,000 troops in Afghanistan next door to increasingly Chinese-leaning and unstable Pakistan and next door to Iran and, you know, giving a broader presence in that neighborhood. Well, that's something to talk about in future episodes of Deep State Radio. Uh, I hope you'll tune in for another one. There'll be another one very shortly down the week. In the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Julie. And thank you, Rosa. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.